Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Nice to see you guys all this morning. What a joy it was to hear Kafisa's testimony. And it really hits my heart because that's really what's on my heart today. Today I'd like to preach a sermon that is uh, comprised of one point. You know, normally when uh, new preachers go to seminary, one of the things some seminaries teach you is a sermon must have three points, must have an introduction, must have a conclusion. You know, three points in the middle. So often... Preachers struggle to find three points that rhyme, you know, three title, like three uh, point headings that rhyme, and the last one is always the one that doesn't rhyme, and it's real difficult. But today, all I have is is a one-point sermon. Just put this mic on before I forget. One-point sermon, and, and what I'm going to be telling you is what Kahisa just said, so we can actually all just say amen and go home now. But uh, I'm going to maybe use a couple more words and we're going to open a text of scripture. So maybe I could just, um, with us, read a few verses from Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. And while you're busy turning there, I want to tell you that my main point today, the one point that I'm going to make, is I'm going to explain why it is that we at Living Hope Church use the Bible as the primary guide for life and pursuing godliness in the whole of church life and especially in biblical counseling. Why do we use the Bible in biblical counseling? What is so important about the Bible? Why is the Bible unique when we use it in counseling? You know, the world has got no respect for the Word of God. So here I want to show us why it is that we respect the Word of God so much. So Psalm chapter 19. I'm just going to read a few verses starting in verse 7. And of course, I would love to have preached so many more verses in this text, but in this chapter, but I'm going to read from verse 7 in Psalm chapter 19, where the writer says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Verse 10 is wonderful. This is what Kahisa was pretty much telling us. In other words, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Isn't that a part of our faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that true faith believes that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him? And this is really at the heart of why we believe that the Bible is our, at the heart, it is our truth source, it is our final authority 
in everything we do in this church and especially in biblical counseling. So let me start with this. Now that I've introduced this wonderful text, let me start with a little bit of reasoning for you. Um, in, my, in my course of uh, academic work over the last few years, one of the things I've had to do, as you who are academics know, you have to find out how you can know that what you believe is true. How do I know that this is true? And of course in the church we have to know that this is true. If you come to me for counseling, let's say you book an appointment and you come to my office and I tell you something you should or shouldn't do, you want to know whether what I'm saying is true or not, don't you? If you go to any other therapist or any other psychologist, for example, for counseling, you want to know whether what that person is telling you is true. I spoke with an 11-year-old boy this week and he went to a psychologist and the psychologist said something to him and after he left the psychologist's office, the little boy said to his dad, I don't want to go back to that lady anymore because I don't believe what she's saying. And really, I agreed with the little boy because what this therapist had said to the boy wasn't true. So how do we know what's true? So my field, of course, is biblical counseling in the African context. So I believe that the Bible is what is true. We can refer to the Bible and we have an authoritative source of truth. But now what is the closest we can find in South Africa? I've been searching for something that the professional field might say this is, this is the truth for the closest profession to biblical counseling in the African context. Well, I stumbled across African psychology. So African psychology believes that over 50 years, over the last 50 years, psychology in South Africa has been dominated by Western thought. So there's a group of people, there are a number of writers who have decided we need to Africanize psychology. We need to have a uniquely African psychology. And that means we need an African way of determining what's true. And of course, you know, if you're listening to me now, you're thinking, yo, this is going to be interesting. How do I know what's true if I'm an African psychologist? If the whole of my psychology is based on African thought? Well, I read a guy by, by the name of Nwoye, who, who is quite a prolific writer. He's written many sort of contentious articles on the basis of African psychology. And in one of his articles, he, one of his articles is called, What is African Psychology the Psychology of? So what is this thing? So he's got this whole article about what African psychology is and how it's different from all kinds of other psychologies, Western psychologies. And one of the things he says, I'm going to spare you all of the details, but one of the things that he says is that he says in African psychology, this is how you can know what is true. There are at least, he doesn't uh, limit it to these, but there are at least 14 different sources of truth if you're an African psychologist. 14 different sources of truth. How many sources of truth do we have in this church? We have one source of truth. We have one book that we can go to and we can find everything that God has said on every topic God has spoken about in this one book. We don't have to search all around the world. So these 14 authority sources in African psychology, you might be saying to yourself, I wonder what these could be. How do I know when I go to an African psychologist that he's going to tell me the truth? How do I know that the, the counsel he gives me is right? 
Well, some of the sources include observing other people. So if I observe other people and I see the way people behave, I can come to a conclusion on what's true or not. And I don't know about you, but if I said to you in counseling, I think this is right because I've seen other people doing it, you would say, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. Another source of authority in African psychology is uh, listening to respected people. Regardless of what their source of authority is, you listen to elders, for example, and what they tell you is right, what they tell you is true. And I'm sure that all of you can vouch for this, that not every elder tells you what is true. One of the other sources is stories that come from generation to generation. If this comes down in a story from antiquity, you know that that's true. I've got this whole um, series of encyclopedias on the history of Africa that goes all the way back to 500 BC. And one of the sources of truth, and I say truth like this, one of the sources of truth they use for information is just narrative that comes down from generation to generation. And if it comes down from a long time ago, you can know that it's true. We don't do that in this church. We don't believe that that is an authentic way of determining truth. Another way, one of the other 14 ways, is uh, Proverbs. Similar to stories, if there's a proverb that's been passed down from generation to generation, you can know that what that proverb says is true. I'm not talking about biblical proverbs, I'm just talking about proverbs that come, you know, like the early bird catches the worm. Is that always true? Then you've got dreams. I can see Danielle looking at me like she really believes this is true. (laughs) I'm being sarcastic. Let's say she came to me for counseling and I said to her, you know, Danielle, normally I would say this to you, but last night I had a dream. And based on my dream, I think I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you other counsel. You know, how many of you, if you came to me for counseling and I said, no, I'm telling you this is true, I dreamt it. How many of you would say, yeah, I believe that what this guy is saying is true? Nobody. And if you, you know, if you really believe that's true, (laughs) we really need to talk about that. The Bible is our source of truth. Then you've got, uh, as another one, you've got discussions. If you have a discussion with somebody else and you come to a consensus, then that consensus is true. Another one of those 14 ways of telling the truth is reasoning. Reasoning has its place, but it's not the final source of truth. Reasoning needs data. It needs information to start with. Then you've got myths. I don't know if you guys know the difference between a myth and a legend. Well, a myth is a story that's not based on any particular factual details. It's just a story. A legend is a story. It might be fabricated, but it's based on an actual character like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. There's been a whole lot of research trying to decide if that was actually fact or not. It's a legend. It's based on some possible facts, but there is some validity to it. But here, we can look at myths. We can look at myths, stories that have passed down from generation to generation, and that's how we can know what's true. And then the last one I'm going to use is metaphors. I mean, there's 14 of these. I've just picked a few at random. Metaphors. You know, like birds uh, sit in the trees, and they come out, 
and they eat food when they can see there's no people around. That means, my boy, when you start a business, you must make sure that you just stand outside and you watch for an opportunity and then you must jump in like the birds. You must be afraid of the people who are such and such. I mean, is that true? Anybody can interpret metaphors in any way. The church has got into trouble like that in ages in the past. So what I'm saying is this church has one source of authority that is reliable and we don't have to go back to all of these things like dreams and myths and legends and stories from the past that we have no clue where they came from and we have no idea what truth is involved in those. We have one book. And of course, what I'm trying to point out is that this is 14 ways of finding out the truth in one field of study. Not even psychology, African psychology, which is a tiny little part of the whole discipline of psychology. There's hundreds of schools of psychology. And then even out of psychology itself, you've got, you've got so many disciplines and every discipline has to determine what's true. So all I'm doing is I'm focusing on the pinhead of the academic world and this little pinhead is saying there's 14 ways of telling the truth. But now that's not the end of the story. You've got a guy by the name of Ratele who writes and he says, no, 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 what this guy is saying is not true. Actually, that's not the whole of the story. There's actually four categories of African uh, psychology and what this guy is presenting is only one of those four categories. So all of those other three categories have other ways of telling what's true and what's not. And science is one of the, one of the major things that they depend on. So I'm hoping that what, you, what I'm saying here is showing you that even if you just take one little pinprick of the academic world, the world at large, everybody is struggling to know what is true. When you sit down with a counselor, that guy is in a world of struggle. He's trying to work out, how can I tell this, something, this person something that will give them hope, but that is also true. And the world does not know. We need to be firm on this. We need to be bold on this as the church. We are the only people in the world who have a source of truth that is reliable. It is the final source of truth, the Word of God. Then, of course, you have a guy by the name of Noyer, the guy that I quoted just now. And he comes back and he says, you need to understand the concept of being human by looking at African traditional religion if you want to be an honest African psychologist. So you say, okay, well this, is, this even changed the concept of being human. And then you've got another guy by the name of Onyango, and he writes another whole lot of information in his dissertation. And he says that we, uh, we need to understand the concept of what it is, to, I mean, uh, he says that the African, the Western style talk therapy doesn't work in Africa. Rather, the, rather African psychologists need to include the living dead in ritualistic um, solutions that shift personal responsibility to the community. Now we all know that uh, if you live in an African society, that is often what happens, that the community bears the blame for the misdeeds of an individual that one single individual is often de-emphasized and the community, the family name uh, or the, the, the societal group bears the responsibility for one person's misdeeds. And that's why rituals are done, of course, in a community setting. So this guy Onyongo is saying, well, we need to uh, address this issue even further. And he brings in the living dead. We need to talk to them as well. 
You know what that is all about. I don't have to explain that. So I want to just point out these, these two details here. The one is that there's a sharp disagreement even in this one small field of study as to what can be trusted as true. And secondly, the truth that they discover is related to one group of people over a limited period of time. African psychology is related to African people living in Africa and it only is being discovered, if I can use that term, right now at this period of time. In other words, nobody in generations past has had African psychology to help them, which means other people had no reason for hope if this is what's true. Anyway, there's a lot of reasoning that goes through this and I don't want to bore you with the details, but I'm hoping that all what I've shared here is sufficient for you to realize that nobody has answers to the question, what is true? Except the church of God. We have God's word, God has spoken, and we know what is true. And we need to be bold with the truth in the world. So how do we personally become convinced that what we know is true? And in contrast to these other things that we've been looking at in biblical counseling or in all of church life, we need to know what is true so that we can speak the truth and we can have a clear conscience when we deal with each other. We need to have a source of truth that is universal, that is a standard for all people at all times throughout all of history. doesn't matter what circumstances you're in. We need one body of truth that is true for all people at all times. We need a source of truth that comprehends the whole of life. Not just the little ideas that African psychology or any other discipline focuses on. We need a truth that addresses the whole of life. We know that God claims that what He says in the Word is true. What other source of authority can we appeal to? And what I'm saying is that if you have to appeal to dreams, you must at least give me the honor of saying, well... I totally believe that God said these words and I'm going to believe that with all my heart. I've got nothing else. You believe that this myth that came down from great-great-great-great-grandfather is true. Well, you can at least give me the honor of believing that what God says is true. It is true because God wrote it and God claims that it's true. The Word of God, in addition, we don't, we don't rest there, the Word of God, in addition, um, if we, if we look at the reality of life, we can look at the Word of God and we can look at the reality of life and we can see they match. We can see that geography matches with the way the Bible represents it. For example, I mean, there's so many things here. You could just look at the, the geography of the promised land, of Canaan. You see how it's described and you can see that some of those rivers and, and places are still there. History books show that all of the details that the Bible mentions are correct and accurate. This one guy, Thomas Lewin, that I read, who wrote on the letters of Paul, he spent 40 years as a lawyer working on the letters of Paul and going to all of those places and examining them. He, he keeps saying in his book over and over and over, he cannot believe the accuracy with which the apostles wrote because everything he found in the modern day so much reflects what God says in his words through the apostles, especially in the book of Acts through Luke. Absolutely remarkable. So the, the Bible is an accurate reflection of real life. 
historically, geographically, but speaks about the human condition spot on. And over every other issue that you can be conscious in the world, the Bible gives you an accurate representation. And even more beyond that, the Word of God is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God Himself, the author of the book, is there with you while you're reading it. And He illuminates the words of God to you as you desire to understand what God is saying. I mean, what other book do you read where the author himself sits down in a chair with you and says, Alan, let me tell you what this text is saying. You're like, wow, God is speaking to me through this text. I mean, out of all of those sources of authority, surely we have the most glorious text here. And that brings us to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19 verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Guys, just, just tell me with a show of hands, how many of you can pick up any book in this world apart from the Bible and say, no, Alan, you're wrong. This book is perfect as well. How many of you have got a book at home or if you've read a book that you can say, this book is perfect? Oh, not many of us. I've never seen a book that's perfect. The Word of God is absolutely perfect. So what we're looking at here, I think John MacArthur did the best job of doing an analysis of this text in his introduction to biblical counseling. And seeing we're speaking about biblical counseling here today, I'm going to use a lot of what he says. So if this, some of this sounds familiar to you, it's John MacArthur speaking a lot of the stuff. All, this, all the mistakes are mine, of course, but uh, all the stuff that was right was obviously his. So John MacArthur says that there are six statements in this text about the Word of God. And you'll notice that the Word of God is referred to in six different ways. You'll notice that the Word of God um, has six different characteristics in this text. And you'll notice that the Word of God does six different things. It performs six different actions. And isn't that remarkable? You just get into this text and you realize that the Word of God is totally unlike any other book that you've ever read. It's totally unlike a myth or a legend or a proverb or a metaphor, you know, or some generational wisdom that you've come across. It's totally different. Because it, it has different titles that describe it. It has different characteristics that are absolutely beautiful. And it actually does, it performs like Hebrews 4.12 says that it's living and active. It's working in your heart as you're reading it. And the author himself is sitting with you and he's explaining it to you while you're reading. I mean that is a different book. That is a totally different source of authority. So the Lord of course is the source of all of these words. You notice here, again, in every one of these titles, it says the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, ordinance of the Lord. He speaks about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And he's, he's pointing, he's putting God right at the heart of this word. This word is characterized by God. You'll notice in verse 7a, the first part, the law of the Lord is perfect. He's speaking about the fact this is Torah, it's the standard of God. God has a standard and that standard is perfect. This is the covenant keeping God who is saying, you can trust what I say. And you can have this as a final authority in all of your life. Isn't it wonderful? Like Kahisa was saying, her testimony was so beautiful. Isn't it wonderful that it doesn't matter how dark our lives get, we can come back to the word of God doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to pay per click kind of thing. 
You can come to the Word of God and it's free. You can get on your knees and you say, God, I beg of you, help me to understand this text and help me, Lord, to find strength in this text. And you'll notice here, the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. Like she, as a doctor in, in the hospital wards where people are dying daily, and it revived her soul. It gave her the power to keep going on a daily basis. Do you know any other book like that? It is God who is speaking here and who is changing you. It is perfect. It is complete in every single sense. In contrast to all of these other sources of knowledge that I've been talking about, it's completely in a category of its own. It refreshes you. It revives you. It restores you. It transforms you. It converts you. It changes you. It changes your soul as you're reading it. And I'm like you in every way. I know what it's like to struggle to read the Word of God. And so many times when I message people in the church, you know I've messaged you, most of you. And one of the prayer requests that I get more often than anything else is, um, please pray that God will give me a desire to read His Word and to pray. I know what that's like. I know how hard it is to read the Word of God. You go through times where it's really difficult. You go through times where it's the greatest thing in the world. But you do know one thing. that is, If you come to God with a heart that desires to know and to learn and, and to understand Him, God will bless you through His Word. The law of the Lord will revive your soul. And that is a, there's a promise that you can hold on to in the darkest times. You can say there doesn't seem to be any hope. But I know where I can go to have my soul revived. And you can honestly come to the Word of God and you will be rewarded if you study the Word of God. This is a promise from God. You can trust it. This is not some Opa Khruki's legend. This is God speaking to you. The second half of that verse says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Isn't that remarkable? God's personal testimony of the statutes... These are, this is God speaking. He's sitting with you in a chair. He's sitting next to you while re you're reading the Bible. And He's saying to you, um, this is my personal testimony. Now sometimes you will, I think probably American politics is a good example for us right now. With all of the propaganda that's going between the Democratic and the Republic uh, parties. And you can see how there's so much lies and so much misinformation that is being spread. And people are slinging each other with mud and completely turning information around all the time and you know what wouldn't it be wonderful just in that one situation to have somebody with a sound mind who could sit down and tell you this is exactly what's going on here and they could give you a clear picture because we don't know do we we have no clue who you know who's speaking right and who's speaking wrong we have no idea because of all the lies but imagine sitting down in a chair with your bible open and god says to you this is my testimony it's God speaking. You can trust me to speak the truth to you. And you say, wow, thank you God. I don't have to be this great scientific whiz. I don't have to have all of the knowledge on epistemology and, and all of this stuff. All I have to do is say, God, please help me. I'm weak. I don't understand. Please help me when I open this text to understand what you're saying and to believe that it's true. And God comes to you as a person who may not be wise, may not be esteemed in this world. You might be at the lowest rank, the lowest pay structure, you know, the pay grade, you know, what we speak about, you know, that's beyond my pay grade, we use that. You know, you might be on the lowest pay grade, but God Himself comes to you as a simple person, as an ordinary, humble person who doesn't have a big understanding, and He says, let me go with you through this word by word and help you to understand it. 
And I just find that the most glorious thing in the world, that God is kind enough to come to me and give me His personal testimony that is good for every situation that I find myself in. And He's willing to speak to me kindly and gently and slowly. If I have to read that line again, say, Lord, please explain this line to me again. I can go back. And He doesn't say, Ah! He says, No. I will make a simple person wise. And that takes time. It takes a process of coming to know and to understand. And God is going to go the whole distance with you in His Word. A person who is undiscerning. A person who is simple minded. A person who is uninformed. A person who is ignorant. God will make that person wise through His beautiful Word. Glorious, glorious Word. So, I mean, just those first two statements we've looked at. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Immediately I know where to go if I'm feeling destroyed in this life, discouraged, depressed, in a state of despair. I can come to the Word of God and I know that God will revive me through His Word. I know also that the statutes of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, God's own Word speaking to me, I can trust that because it's God's Word. And if I'm a simple person, God will make me wise. I will become a wise person studying the Word of God. And then the third one, if we look at the first half of verse 8, he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The precepts of the Lord, these are God's principles. These principles... When we're speaking about the principles, we're not just speaking about God's direct instruction, do not kill, for example. We're speaking about principles that God puts into His Word that are applicable to every situation you may encounter. Isn't it fascinating that God gives us, and and a lot of people struggle to understand this, and if you're one of them, I would love to chat to you about this, but isn't it wonderful that God gives us specific instructions? He tells us not to steal. You know, He tells us, uh, particular ways in which husbands must love their wives, for example, it gives us specific instructions. And then there's a whole area of life where it gives us general principles. In other words, we must conclude that if we stick within God's general principles there, we can actually choose any of those options. And it doesn't bother God as long as we stick to those principles. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't it a wonderful God who will give you the freedom to act according to the way you understand His principles to do right? He's not micromanaging you. So what this text is saying is that there are principles in the Word of God, general principles that apply to the whole of life, and you can trust that if you obey those principles, if you follow those principles, these will turn out for your joy. What a wonderful thing if I live according to those principles because I'm not lying awake wondering if I did the right thing or the wrong thing. No, I did it inside of those broad principles. God's principles are sufficient for every aspect of living in contrast to all of those things, those 14 epistemologies, I mean those 14 sources of truth that people depend on just in that one field of African psychology. And never, I don't know how many millions there are in the world to support every dissertation. This is my epistemology, I believe this and that and you. And a lot of those things you want to say, but this is crazy, man. You don't even refer to the Word of God, so how can this be true? These principles guide you in the right direction, and it is a direction that is followable. It's not some lofty big thing that ordinary people can't live according to. Like um, God says to Moses, you know, when he's speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy, he's not saying this faith 
that I'm presenting to you. It's not this huge, big, lofty thing that you've got to climb right, it, right up into heaven to go and get. You don't have to be this massive athlete that can run to the end of the world. You don't have to be a diver that can get down to the depths of the oceans. He's saying, you know this, you can do this right in your heart while you're standing here. While you're sitting in your chair, you can say, God have mercy on me and help me to understand this text. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely wonderful that this source of authority is accessible to all people at all times. God is merciful and God is kind and He's given us principles. And if you live according to these principles, if you fight toward living according to these principles, you will have joy. You will live a joyful life. And you'll notice what he says here, um, they will give joy to the heart. In other words, he's speaking about your inner person. You will have joy right down inside of you, where you, you, you're not walking around with a joyful face, but inside you're living in a state of, of misery and sorrow. He's saying right down in the core of your heart, in the very center of your being, you will walk around with joy. And I look at God and I say, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you have gone so far to make life livable according to your principles so that I can have joy. How many of us in this room want joy? How many of us want a revived heart? How do we get that? You don't pursue joy and a revived heart by pursuing them on their own. You find your heart revived and you find joy by saying, here it is, the word of God is right here. I'm going to go home right now. As soon as the service is over, I'm going to go home right now. I'm going to open my Bible and I'm going to say, God, thank you that you're sitting with me right here and you're going to explain these words to me and you're going to revive my soul and you're going to give me joy in the depths of my heart that's going to be real. I mean, what a prospect. And I'm hoping that you can see why I'm so excited about biblical counseling. In the church, we have a source of authority where the biblical counselor presents the word of God to people and we sit and we watch God taking over and God gives people joy. God revives people in misery. God changes people's lives. And we sit and we say, wow, look what God did in this person's life. And that, it's absolutely fascinating. I absolutely love this job because I see God at work. And what a wonderful thing that is. And then we can move on after this deep and lasting joy that God gives us through His Word. We notice in the second half of verse 8, he says, the, priest, um, the commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. In other words, the commands or the authority of God is presented in his commands. God speaks, you listen. There's no alternative. We have all of those different sources of truth that we've been looking at. You know, if I hear a proverb from some older guy, I'm going to say, huh, nice proverb, I might use that. In fact... I was just remembering with my girls earlier this morning, one guy that I met up in Middleburg in Pumalanga, he said to me, you know brother, a man without Jesus is like an empty tin. And I just thought, you know, what an awesome proverb. That's wonderful. But you know, as, as nice as that proverb is, it doesn't contain any, any elements that say to me, you have to do this. This proverb gives, gives me the authority to tell you what to do. No, the word, the word of God alone has God's authority to tell you what to do. These are not optional suggestions. And by the way, I like that proverb. I really dig it. I hope, some, I hope it gets around and people start using it. And when it gets back to my buddy in, in Mpumalanga, he'll be like, yeah, because I told him I'm going to use it. So he was very happy that I was going to use it. So God's commands are clear. 
Like when you shine a light into a dark place. They're radiant, they're light, they illuminate. And how many times have I I been in counseling situations where people's problems are complex? People are not simplistic beings. People are complex beings. And when I sit and listen to people's problems, I'm thinking, man, Lord, you know how you are going to help me to unravel this problem. And I begin at one end of a ball of string and I begin to undo the knots one by one. Sometimes people who sit with me in counseling, they say to me, when they listen to a person pouring out their heart, they say, how do you know where to start? And you know what? The Word of God shines light. The principles of the Word of God, they come onto that and you are able to exclude a whole lot of other things that people in the world would probably consider and it helps you to focus on exactly what you need to focus on and you begin with one thing. And you give somebody hope by focusing just on one thing. Let's untangle this one thing for a start. And then when that's sorted out, we begin with the next thing. And we untangle that. And before you know it, God has taken over in the life of that person and He has changed them completely, radically. And I just say, God, thank you for that. What a privilege to be involved in that process. So the Word of God is illuminating. It sheds light in darkness. The Word of God helps you to avoid evils that are hidden in the darkness as you follow His precepts, as you follow His principles. So often you say, I wonder what will happen if I do the following thing. Like if you're going into business and you don't know what might happen. Well, the Word of God helps you to know that it doesn't actually matter what lies ahead of me. If I'm living according to His principles, I'm always going to be equipped to face what is lying in the darkness ahead of me. And that brings you peace. It helps you to relax. It helps you to be calm and collected knowing that you've done everything you can to be prepared for the future and you will be prepared for the future when the future comes. The Word of God is like a torch. It helps you to see where you're going. The Word of God consists of clear commands that help you to navigate through the unclear and confusing problems of life. Bit by bit by bit, God unravels every single problem in His Word. And then verse 9a, the last verse we're looking at today. The first half says, the fear of the Lord is pure. And of course, you know, while I was studying this text, and especially when you look at John MacArthur's analysis, saying that the Word of God is given six different titles here, And you've noticed the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord. Now suddenly in verse 9 it says, the fear of the Lord. How can that be a title for Scripture? Well, it seems that Scripture is given this title in this particular psalm because this is what Scripture does. It's one of the functions. If you're a person who pours yourself into the text of God, if if you love the Word of God, this is a natural result. In other words, it's a sort of a metaphor for Scripture It could be called the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is so directly to your exposure to the Word of God that you will fear God if you study. You'll look at God in awe and you'll say, what a glorious God. In other words, the Word of God brings fear in in the sense of worship and awe. The Word of God stuns you when you read it, when you look at the portrait of God in His words. Scripture is pure. Scripture will never lead you into sin. You can trust every instruction is going to be pure and clean. Now, for example, um, we, don't, we don't mean that everything in Scripture is pure. 
For example, you read about Lot getting drunk and sleeping with his two daughters in a cave. I mean, that's not, that's not pure. I think we're all going to agree. But what we're saying is that the Bible is not teaching you to do that. The Bible will never teach you to do something wrong, even if the Bible is, is um, graphic and stark when it comes to details about real life details like that situation with a lot and so many other things that we could mention here. A lot of graphic detail. But it's not teaching you to do that. As you, as you read all of those details, you can be warned, you can be encouraged, you can, you can be afraid that you might fall into a situation like that and change your course. You can look at Samson, for example, with all his problems with women and his anger and the way he conducted himself. You can look at that and you can say, well, God, please help me not to be like that. But the Bible's not going to teach you to do something that's wrong. So the fear of the Lord, as you look at the fear of the Lord, it is pure. You're never going to find the Word of God teaching you to do wrong. And it endures forever. And that's what we were saying. It is an authority source that is going to last forever and ever and ever. And not only is it an authority source that's going to last forever and ever, but it has already lasted for thousands of years as the Word of God has been accumulated since Moses' day, giving an account of creation all the way through to the final apostle John writing on Revelation end times. The Word of God is the final authority for all times, for all circumstances. Praise God for giving us a text like this that we can turn to. Who else has this? I mean, we looked at African psychology and now they're grasping at straws in the darkness trying to find some way of proving that what they're saying is true. But they come up with not even one single source that you can depend on. And here we have the very words of the living God. We can read one single word as Andre was saying just now. Matthew 4 verse 4, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word will lead us in the right direction. And then final section here, verse 9b. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. So God's evaluation, God's judgment of the world, God's analysis of the human condition, God's analysis of everything is the analysis that we can and must trust. The Word of God gives us a completely trustworthy view of man. And you know how, doing my research inside of the, the framework of biblical counseling, it's remarkable how the, the psychological world, the, the social sciences, have, a, have, have an attitude of mockery toward people who say that the Word of God is the final authority. And isn't that what you would expect from Satan? Isn't that what you would expect from one who is trying to destroy the one true source of hope and revival and joy for human beings in this world? And that's why I stick with biblical counseling because I know that I cannot find another source of authority that rivals the Bible anywhere else in the world. I want to just conclude with a few words from John MacArthur and they are based on the next couple of verses. These words are not really the focus of my text and my sermon today. But just read the last few words here. And you can understand exactly why the psalmist says these words straight after this text that we're looking at today. He says in verse 10, They are more precious than gold. Huh? The words of God, the scriptures, the text, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. 
You can imagine a person sitting on the street and he's homeless and he has no money. And you come to him and you speak to him the words of God. You might think, ah, come on, can't you give him something of real value? Do you realize that the word of God is so precious to the human soul that it is worth more than as much gold as you can amass in this world? And I think we often miss that reality. Verse 10 continues, and they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. If you've delighted in the word of God, you know exactly why the psalmist is saying these words, don't you? You know that you've had times where you've said, God, your word is more valuable to me than all the money in the world. And you've also had times when you said, God, this word is sweeter than honey to me. I can't think of anything sweeter and more beautiful. This is life itself. And then he says in verse 11, By them is your servant warned. And he finishes off by saying, In keeping them there is great reward. So MacArthur says, his summary is, Where do we go to find salvation? Emphasize that word. Where do we find to go to find skill in living daily life? Where do we go to find an overcoming joy through all of the trials of life? Where do we go to get light on dark things of life? Where do we go for a permanent resource that never changes? Where do we go for truth? There is only one answer, God's Word, the Bible. And notice what I'm going to read here is packed full of information. So just drink in every word here that MacArthur says in his summary. God's word, the Bible, nowhere else can we find, that's his answer, God's word, the Bible, nowhere else can we find that which will totally transform the whole person, make wise, bring joy, enlighten the eyes, be permanently relevant, and produce comprehensive righteousness. Scripture is our greatest possession, more precious than gold. It is the greatest pleasure, sweeter than honey. It is the greatest protection, warning us from error. It offers the greatest promise and eternal reward. It is the greatest purifier, keeping us from sin. And so, in verse 14, the psalmist's response is predictable. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray that will be true for us. Lord, thank you that we can have this resource. We, we can just imagine traveling in this world and finding a huge big mountain, let's say like Mount Everest, and it's made out of solid gold. We would look at this gold and we say, wow, what a phenomenon. But Lord, all the time we have something even more amazing right here in this church. Right here in this building we have the Word of God. We have something so beautiful and so thrilling and so wonderful. We have something that is valuable beyond measure. We have something that brings us pleasure beyond measure, joy and revival in the heart. And we pray, Lord, this one thing, this one point sermon, why it is that we believe that the Word of God is our source of authority. We pray, Lord, that you would be able to take this and move our hearts so that we will go home from the service and say, God, this is the one thing I want to do this week. All I want to do is I want to get on my knees, I want to open the Word of God, and I want to feast, and I want to find pleasure, and I want to see the face of God. 
And Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to move us in this way. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.